It says here uh, in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21, from, the, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So don't forget, for approximately three years now, Jesus had walked with his apostles, teaching, healing, performing miracles, doing all sorts of things. But this is the time in Jesus' ministry where it got real. And he started to explain to them that he was going to be taken and he was going to suffer and die. And they didn't believe it because they thought, he, well, he was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah that was going to restore Israel as the top nation on earth and do away with the Roman Empire and put the spotlight on Israel. So Peter, being the most outspoken of the apostles, takes Jesus aside, <laughs> verse 22. <laughs> he's going to correct Jesus. Okay, Jesus said he's going to have to suffer and die, and Peter said, hey, listen, this isn't going to happen. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, why did Peter call, or why did Jesus call Peter Satan? Because it wasn't Satan himself, but it was Satan tempting Peter to make these comments. Jesus knew what he had to go through to bring about the salvation of the human race. He was going to have to suffer and die. And here Peter seems to be giving him an easy way out. You don't have to suffer and die. There's, there's other ways of doing this. Jesus recognized that as coming right from Satan. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So again, Peter makes a big mistake. <laughs> we read about how he denied Jesus. Now he rebukes Jesus, okay, and tries to straighten him out and say, you don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. There, there can be another way. So Peter had another lesson to learn. Now we're going to turn to 1 Peter and read something that Peter wrote 30 years later. So after these mistakes that he made, mistakes that probably we would have made too had we been in his place. So we can't pick on him. But 30 years later, now Peter writes two epistles of his own. First and second Peter. And we can tell by what he writes that he learned a lot of lessons. Uh, he had matured. He had come to a deeper understanding of what Jesus' death was all about. And instead of telling Jesus, no, you can't do this, now he realizes why Jesus had to suffer and die. What was once inconceivable to him, Jesus' death, was now an indispensable part of his faith. It says here in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 19. For it is commendable if a man or woman bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. 
But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good, as Jesus did, and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what a change in his attitude and in his way of thinking. Instead of rebuking Jesus and said, no, you're not going to die. We're not going to let this happen. Now he's able to look back and see with profound wisdom, godly wisdom, why Jesus had to suffer and die. So here in this passage, he lists two purposes for Jesus' suffering and death. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Two purposes for the suffering and death of Jesus. Okay, point number one. Jesus suffered as an example to us that we should follow in his steps. So I'm going to refer you back to verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, under the rule of the Roman Empire, in which Jesus and the apostles lived, Christianity was not an authorized religion, so Christians were constantly persecuted and threatened for their beliefs. So the question is, what should Christians do when they're persecuted? Now, as we relate it to our lives today, I'm not talking necessarily about government persecution, although many Christians in the world today are persecuted by their governments. You know, we have Christians in Africa who are persecuted by their governments because a lot of the governments are Muslim governments and they persecute Christians and Christian churches. And in certain communist countries where there is no religion, you know, communist China, Christians are persecuted because of their religion. But there are other forms of persecution that we all face in our lives. Perhaps when you go to work, people who, when they find out that you're a Christian, they have certain ideas about you, not all of them the best. And I don't know always why they have ideas about you, but it seems that in a lot of cases, when people find out you're a Christian, they're ready to judge you because they think you're coming in as a holier-than-thou person, and they're just going to sit there and watch you and wait for you to make a mistake. And they can talk about you behind your back, you know. There's all sorts of persecution that we face as Christians. So the question is, what should Christians do when they're persecuted? Peter seems to be saying, like Jesus, who had done nothing to deserve his punishment, you should submit to it. Bear unjust suffering 
patiently. Now that's tough, isn't it? That's tough to do, but that's what Jesus did. Peter is using Jesus' whole experience from the Last Supper, being in the Garden of Gethsemane, being arrested, being taken away, beaten up, roughed up, brought before uh, trial where they couldn't find anything that he had done wrong, beaten with whips, beaten with rods, crown of thorns on his head, taken away to his crucifixion. He uses that example to show us what we should do when we're persecuted. Bear unjust suffering patiently. Why should we do this? Notice in verse 20, first of all, it has God's approval. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing nothing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good, you endure it. This is commendable before God. So the lesson is, don't do things that you're going to be punished for by the law, like speeding, uh, stealing something from somebody, breaking this law or that law. You know what? If the, pre, if the police arrest you and toss you in jail, you have nobody to blame but yourself. In other words, you deserve whatever you get for having done that. But he's talking about being persecuted for having not done anything wrong. Maybe for just being a Christian, just trying to set a good example, just trying to do the right thing in the face of a bunch of people doing the wrong thing. You're going to take a stand for your beliefs, so you're going to be persecuted for that. You're going to be criticized. You're going to be made fun of. So suffering persecution with a good attitude, it has God's approval. Notice also in verse 21, it's part of our Christian calling. 21, he says, to this you were called. To what you were called? To suffer persecution with a good attitude. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And finally, it was the example of Jesus for us to follow. Verse 22, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. So we should follow his example. So why should we suffer unjust persecution patiently? I gave you three reasons. It has God's approval, verse 20. It's part of our Christian calling, verse 21. It was the example Jesus set for us to follow. Example. This Greek word for example here is the word hupogramos. And it referred to a teacher's copybook on which students trace their letters when learning to write. So the teacher had a copybook with all of the letters properly written, and the teacher would give this book to the student, and maybe they would put a piece of paper on top of it and trace what the teacher had already written, learning to write their letters properly. That's the word for example. So Peter is urging us to copy the example of Jesus and follow in his steps which Peter now realizes he didn't do when he denied him before Jesus was arrested. But Peter eventually would follow in Jesus' steps 
when he himself, Peter, would eventually be crucified for his beliefs and teachings. And that's what tradition says Peter eventually came to. He was martyred and he was put to death himself by crucifixion. I think it was about the year 64, 65, 66 AD, somewhere around there. So it was a hard lesson for Peter to learn, but he directs us as we deal with persecution in our lives, he directs us to the example of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, <clears throat> verse 10. Matthew 5, verse 10, one of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he's not saying anything here about being persecuted for having done wrong. You know, if you get arrested, like I said, for breaking the law, don't feel, oh, woe is me. You know, I'm being unjustly persecuted. No, you're being persecuted and arrested and punished for having broken the law of the land. And you got nobody to blame but yourself. Jesus is talking about the kind of persecution we face for trying to do what's right of being in your office at work and trying to be a good example and trying to let your light shine and not coming across as a self-righteous, you know, and there are some of those self-righteous Christians around who go around and judge everybody and tell them what they're doing wrong. We're not to do that. <laughs> but just in a humble way, obeying the boss, trying to do the best on the job, if you catch flack from that from, from your uh, fellow workers, yeah, you're blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another thing that, back here to 1 Peter, this time I want to turn to chapter 4. In the same book, he wrote this. So we're talking about persecution of one sort or another being par for the course for a Christian. So he says in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, this kind of trial can be anything. Anything from persecution to physical problems, you know, emotional problems, relationship problems that you're, you're struggling to deal with. Don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So when you're going through tough times, when you're in pain, you know, there's a lot of trouble in your life, whether it's persecution or just struggles that you have. First of all, don't be surprised. It's par for the course in the life of a Christian. Jesus never promised us a life free from that kind of stuff. He's telling us that it's going to come and he's encouraging us by telling us how to handle it. Okay? And he goes on to say here, verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. 
However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Christian, the name of Jesus Christ. You're bearing that name in your life. So it's not probably the uh, advice on how to handle this that we would have imagined. Nobody likes to hear trials are par for the course. You know, you're going to have to deal with them, but with God's help, you can deal with them. We want trials to go away. We don't ever want to face persecution because it's very uncomfortable. In fact, there are preachers on TV today, unfortunately some of the most popular ones, who have a gospel that is not really the true gospel. It's part true, but part, you know, the, the focus isn't where it needs to be. Because in a lot of cases, and I won't mention names, but it's a positive, prosperity-based message based on hope and emphasizing God's love and generosity. That, you know what, if you just do this, A, B, and C, oh, you're going to have blessings unmeasured. All the things that you have ever hoped for in life, all the, the cars and the houses God's going to give you if you just do these certain things. They teach that God will reward his devout and generous followers with a healthy and financially prosperous life. So there's part of the true gospel in there about Jesus dying for our sins, but the real focus is on blessings that are going to come your way, that God is going to promise you in this life, you're going to be prosperous, you're going to be healthy all the time. That's not what Peter's saying, and that's not what Jesus ever said. In the real world, we face persecution and we suffer from health issues. So how do we deal with them? That's what Peter's trying to help us to understand. <clears throat> the call to submit to unjust suffering sounds like a beautiful ideal, but is it really practical in the 20th, 21st century America? Is it fair? If people mistreat us and get away with it, is there no justice? Well, notice what it said here, back to our original passage in 1 Peter 2 and verse 23. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, this is important, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And who's that? God the Father. So when facing persecution, when having to deal with trials in our life, here's the main advice, to entrust ourselves, just like Jesus did, to him who judges justly, God the Father. So we don't retaliate against persecutors because it is God's responsibility to deal with it. You know, when Jesus was being hit and spat upon, he didn't spit back and swing back and try to hit, hit the others back. He didn't retaliate. He entrusted himself to God, the Father, to deal with it. Amen. We're quick to retaliate, aren't we? <laughs> if somebody picks a fight with us or throws a punch, we want to throw one right back. I mean, when I watch my, my favorite black and white westerns from the 50s, that's what the cowboys always did. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 12. 
And this is tough to do in our society today, in our day and age. Notice what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And I'm not just talking about fights and getting hit. I'm talking about comments that people make, rumors that they're spreading. Whatever the case, that's all persecution, okay? Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, don't, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. <laughs> Lord, that's hard. <laughs> that's one of the hardest parts of Christianity. You know, if somebody mistreats me and is nasty to me, don't they deserve it back? You know, in whatever way I can find to do it, if I do it personally or sue them or do this or whatever. Vengeance belongs to God. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Here he was the son of God and he took all that. And he entrusted it to his father. So vengeance belongs to God. Yeah, there's room for the courts. You know, today judges in our country are meant to be God's agents to punish evil. That's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 13 there talks about how we should have respect for judges. We should have respect for police officers because God has put them there to make judgments in this world. But God is the ultimate judge, especially when we talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ and everybody stands before the judgment seat. And unfortunately, well, I can't make a broad statement, but it may be harder to find true godly judgment in courts anymore nowadays. But I think we can still find it if our attitude is right and, and we pray for God to intervene for us. So why did Jesus suffer? You wouldn't have expected this answer. He suffered before his crucifixion to set an example for us. Because we're going to suffer too in this life as Christians. Jesus said, expect it. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Okay, that's reason number one. <laughs> Jesus suffered as an example for us. Number two, Jesus died now to be our sin-bearing Savior. Our sin-bearing Savior. So we're back to our original passage here in 1 Peter chapter 2. And as he said in verse 24, he himself bore, carried our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. So what does it mean to bear sin, to carry our sins? Well, it means to bear the penalty of our sins. And the penalty of our sins is death. As it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. 
Hebrews 9, verse 22, and this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament. Hebrews 9, 22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, I didn't make that rule. God did. And he has a purpose for it. So back in Old Testament times, what people were commanded to do was to bring animals. So for your sins, instead of you dying right now, these innocent animals are going to die. So you brought your lamb, you brought your goat, you brought your bull to the temple and the priest. And, you know, I don't think our people today could stand this, but the priest would slit the animal's throat and all the blood would come out, and then the animal would be burned, and that would, temporarily at least, take care of your sins. Amen. Something had to die. In, instead of you, God let it be that animal. So for centuries, that was the practice back in Old Testament Israel. And again, you can't imagine the millions of animals that would have died for the sins of the people. But it was only to be a type, okay, of what was coming, and that was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. I won't turn there, but another scripture you can uh, turn to, Romans 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. Something's going to die, or somebody's going to die for sins. If you've committed sin, you're the one who's carrying the guilt, and it's your life or death that's at stake. Normally, the sinner bears the penalty for sin, but now God has provided a substitute for us. No longer animals. Now it's time for the real thing. And the substitute is Jesus Christ. And, you know, when we look at the cross that he hung on, he hung on that cross and gave up his life to pay the penalty for our sins. He bore the, the penalty of sin. He bore our sins on the cross or on the tree, as it's referred to here. There's a very important passage or chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, that really prophesied it all. And sometimes you wonder, you know, as, as the Jews experienced Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah and who died on the cross, that they didn't get this. Because I'm, I'm sure they knew this chapter very well, because it prophesied Jesus and his suffering and death. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, this individual, known in this chapter as the suffering servant. And it's talking about Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, as we've been reading here in, in Peter. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, his children, his sons and daughters, that's us, and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So this is a prophecy from the Old Testament about a suffering servant that would come along. And Jesus fulfilled this. He was the one who bore our sins and the penalty for our sins. It's a good chapter to look over as uh, you know, we come to Good Friday time and really reflect on Jesus' death and ultimately his resurrection. So I think most of us understand that's why Jesus died. Why he suffered? To set an example, because we're going to suffer too. And uh, it's part of our Christian calling, and it's a privilege, as Peter says, to share in his sufferings. Jesus was the one who said, you know, if you want to be my follower, you pick up your cross and follow me. So, you know, your cross might be different from my cross, but we all have a cross. And when he says, pick up your cross and follow me, your cross symbolizes all of the persecution, all of the trials, all of the suffering, all of the pain that you're going to experience in your life. And we're all unique. We have unique family situations and unique work situations and uh, relationships and marriages and but we're all going to have a cross and we're all in the process of, of carrying it but we should rejoice in it and not be surprised by it Amen. okay here's one final question and some critics of Christianity ask this because they we, we talk about how our sins are forgiven by grace and you know we're, we're forgiven by the blood of Jesus if Jesus paid for our sins and we are forgiven now, can we now live as sinfully as we would like? Well, we're forgiven. So can we just go out and sin whenever we want to? And because the more sin, the more grace there'll be. Well, back here to our original passage in 1 Peter 2, Peter goes on to clarify this. And of course the answer is no. <laughs> Even though we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are covered with a blanket of forgiveness. That doesn't give us freedom to just go out and sin in whatever way we want to. So we're here again in 1 Peter 2. Notice in verse 24. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. So no, we don't have freedom now to live as sinfully as, as we want because we're covered by the grace of God. We're to die to sin. In other words, to root it out of our lives and get rid of it. And to, we're to live for righteousness. We're to want to live the right way now that we have been forgiven of our sins. We live that way, the right way, as a response to God's grace and God's forgiveness. So it's crazy to think, well, I'm forgiven now for the rest of my life, so I can go out and sin in any way we, I want? No, of course not. As Paul said, God forbid. We're to live for righteousness. And in verse 25, he says, For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned now that we've been saved by the blood of Jesus, we, you know, we used to be like a maverick sheep out there roaming off by ourselves, but now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So it's inconceivable that we should return to our old sinful life. The purpose of Jesus' death was not just to forgive our sins, but to secure our holiness as well. That's why our lives should be different from the lives of people out there. Becoming a Christian brings such a radical change to a believer's life that the only imagery to do it justice is the death of the old person and the resurrection of a new person. And that's what's symbolized by baptism. When we put the person in the water, that's the death of the old person. When they come up out of the water, it's a radical change. It's not just the old person redone, it's a brand new person. It's a new creation in God's sight. So as we approach the commemoration of Jesus' death and suffering, we need to remember, why did Jesus suffer? To leave us an example, because we will suffer too. And he set the example of how to handle it. And we have to kind of push down human nature because human nature wants to handle persecution in a particular way, but it's not the right way. We need to look to Jesus' example. He left that uh, copy book for us to copy what he wrote for us so we can do it the right way. He's the teacher, and he set an example that we're to follow. Why did he suffer to set us an example and how to handle it? And why did he die? He died to bear our sins. So what a wonderful savior we have. And even in the time of his life where he was truly suffering and in excruciating pain, he was thinking about us and uh, what his death would mean to us. It would mean eternal life. It would mean eternal bliss living with him, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's now our future and it's guaranteed. And that's what we look forward to. And you know, what that life is going to be like for eternity with God puts whatever suffering we're having to endure in this life in proper perspective, and there's no comparison. So it's hard when we're going through it, but if we keep our priorities straight, if we keep our eyes on our Savior, he will bring us through whatever we may have to face in this life.